Well, I want to invite you, if you will, to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 this morning. And if you are visiting us for the first time or it's been a while since you've been here, you should know that we have been in the midst of a series through the Ten Commandments. And we're at commandment number 10, so you've missed it. But thankfully, there is a a list of sermons on this series through the Ten Commandments online that you can listen to. Millions of people download these sermons every week. What a joke. But please do that if you're interested in hearing more about these uh, these beautiful commandments that God has given us, the shape in which he's called us to live our lives in dependence upon his grace. We're going to read the 10th commandment here in just a moment. But before we do that, we need to read Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2. They remind us that as people who follow after Christ, we have been given this law in the context of having already received his grace. So let's read Exodus 20 beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now if you skip down to verse 17, you'll find the 10th commandment. It says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything That is your neighbor's. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. Well, if you have been with us for the past several weeks as we've explored the Ten Commandments, one of the things that you'll notice is that the Ten Commandments are fundamentally concerned with our hearts. We break these commandments not just externally, not just outwardly, but we break them inwardly. It's an issue of our heart. And so when we looked at the commandments, we saw in the first and second commandment that these commandments revealed that our hearts are idolatrous. In the third commandment, we revealed, we saw that our hearts are hypocritical. The fourth commandment revealed our restless hearts. The fifth commandment revealed our disrespectful and arrogant hearts. The sixth commandment revealed our hateful hearts. The seventh commandment revealed our lustful hearts. The eighth commandment revealed our greedy hearts. And the ninth commandment revealed our dishonest hearts. And we're guilty of all of those things. And so if you're someone who's come to these commandments thinking that things like adultery and murder and theft are not really big deals in your life, I'm afraid you might have missed the point. Because Scripture is constantly showing us that murder begins with anger. And we're all guilty of that. That adultery begins with lust and things like theft begin with greed. And it filters down into the level of our hearts. And in case that was not abundantly clear up to this point, God gives us the Tenth Commandment. And the Tenth Commandment says, you shall not covet. And so in the Tenth Commandment, what God is doing is he's not just prohibiting the actual sins of things like murder and adultery and theft and so forth, but he's, he's prohibiting the desire for those things. He's prohibiting a, a, a heart that is geared towards imbibing that kind of life that is in rebellion against him. And so he's saying that a resentful heart towards our neighbor, one that desires and covets his prosperity and longs for the things and the life and the status that our neighbor has, is fundamentally an indication that we are not content with the position that God has placed us in this life. It's discontentment, it's covetousness, it's a violation of the Tenth Commandment. But I have to admit this to you. As I was exploring the Tenth Commandment and 
kind of studying the line of thought throughout Scripture, it came upon me that it seems like we might actually need to covet, need to violate this commandment in order to achieve any measure of excellence in this life. We, we, it seems like on the surface that that's what's the case, because if we're going to achieve any measure of success and achieve any measure of excellence, then that means that we must have an intense desire for something. And we must plan to fulfill that desire and take action to achieve that desire. You know, when, when I look over the course of, of, of people in ministry, other, other ministers, there's so many people that I admire and I, and I really would like to be more like them. I, I, I long to have the gifts that they have in, in either preaching or shepherding people or, or reaching people who don't believe or in their ability to understand theology, their ability to understand the Bible. And I long to have those gifts and I long to have those skills. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that in your line of work or whatever it is that you do. You see people who do what you do and you want to figure out how to do it as well as they do it. Maybe you see people's family lives. You see your family life is not all that great and you see other people's family where there seems to be a relative level of harmony where the the children respect their parents and the parents love their children. The husband and wife actually love each other. Imagine that. And and you long to have that kind of thing happening in your family. You desire it and you you scheme. You try to get that kind of thing. You know, when I read scripture, there, there seems to be nothing especially spiritual about settling for mediocrity. Or, or spiritual about just being not particularly excellent in things. And so there's this tension, isn't there? There's a tension between what we see in the Tenth Commandment, which says do not covet, do not have some kind of an ordinate desire that owns you, and at the same time pursuing excellence. We, we read in 1 Corinthians that Paul says that whether we eat, drink, or whatever it is that we do, we're to do it all for the glory of God, which means that in all of our endeavors, whether we are at work or play or in relationship with one another, we're to do that excellently. We're to do it for the glory of God. And to pursue excellence usually means that there's some standard laid out to us, usually laid out by somebody else something that we can see, something that we desire to achieve, and we, and we make a plan to carry it out. And so the question is, what is the difference between that and covetousness? What's the difference between that and coveting? Well, I would say this first. First of all, you need to remember that Christianity does not neuter you from your desires. It, it doesn't strip them away. We're, we're not Buddhists, in other words. Buddhists believe that You need to be completely stripped of any desire because you'll never fully achieve your desires and so it's going to leave you miserable and it's going to cause you to suffer if you have all of these unmet desires in your life. And so the point of Buddhism, the way in which you achieve nirvana, is to empty yourself, to to completely detach yourself, to, to have no desires whatsoever. But Christianity, my friends, does not teach that. That's not part of Christianity. We are called, first of all, to desire God above all things. But we're even told in Scripture that the earthly material things that we have and need and want, those are not necessarily bad desires. We see, when we were looking at the Song of Solomon, when we were studying the commandment on adultery, that sexual desire is not such a bad thing, even in singleness, even in an unmarried state. The, the, the people in that particular passage were in a, in a 
at a certain point in that passage, unmarried, and yet they sexually long for each other and to fulfill that desire in the context of marriage. The desire for sleep, the desire for food, the desire for children, even to have a better house to live in. We see it in Proverbs chapter 24. None of those desires are bad. Christianity is not Gnostic. It doesn't teach that the spiritual world is good and the material world is evil. The material world is good. Our stuff is good. Better stuff is better. And, and, it's, and it's wrong to say that it's bad to desire any kind of material things where nowhere in the Bible is that assumed to be the case. So it's not the point of the Tenth Commandment to rid us of our desires. That's not the point. The point of the Tenth Commandment is that when those desires become all-consuming, that we've crossed the line. When we so covet our neighbor that we actually rejoice in his failures and we get bitter and frustrated when he succeeds, it's at that point that we know that we've been enslaved, that, 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 we, have, that we are coveting what our neighbor has. When our efforts work against our neighbor's best interests rather than for it, that's when we've crossed the line. When we tell ourselves that life is meaningful and happy only to the degree that you look as good as her, that you are as successful as he is, that you are as intelligent as so-and-so, that you have what other people have, it's at that point when your desires are no longer things that you own, but that your desires have taken ownership of you, that your desires have enslaved you. It's, it's the tail wagging the dog situation. And that's what is being prohibited here in the Tenth Commandment. Because it ruins your life and it causes you to worship an, an entirely different God altogether. In fact, in fact, it's been said by some that the Tenth Commandment is really just the First Commandment stated in a different way. Because the, the First Commandment calls us not to worship anything or anyone other than the true and living God. And the Tenth Commandment calls us not to desire anything to the extent that it becomes a functional God for us. That's what's being laid out for us in the 10th commandment because both commandments here reject idolatry. They they reject the notion that we worship something, we so desire something that it owns us and it makes demands upon our lives, that we must serve that in order to have contentment and joy. You know, studying the 10th commandment this week has caused me to give a lot of thought to how this commandment actually intersects with this whole Anthony Weiner thing. It's been a big deal in the news, and obviously what he did was a terrible thing, and it's something that we hate to see, especially in people who are supposed to represent their constituents in the halls of Congress. But what I saw in Anthony Weiner is something that is common to all of us. His his heart is there to some extent in every single person in this room and outside of it. Because what was going on there? Well, he has some kind of sexual desire that crops up in his heart, and that's all good and well, but it gets perverted, doesn't it? His desire becomes directed towards someone to whom, several people, to whom he is not married. And so he devises a plan to fulfill that desire, and he executes a plan, and all along he does so with the intent to hide it from his wife and to hide it from the public. 
And so in some sophisticated way, I mean, this is a, this is a sharp, intelligent human being. But in some sophisticated way, he told himself that he had to have that nebulous thrill that came from swapping suggestive pictures of himself with other women on some kind of social networking site. The thrill of that became idolatrous to him. He had to have it. It became a functional God. And God's promise him pleasure if he embraces it and indulges it, and it promised him discontent if he ignored it. And so he chased after it. He mulled over his desire. He plotted. He schemed. He pursued it. But eventually he got caught, didn't he? He got caught. He got backed into a corner. And when he got caught, there was another desire that cropped up in him, and that desire was to protect his reputation. That became God to him at that particular moment in time. That was his self-definition. It was his identity. And so in his desire to protect his reputation above all else, he devised another plan, which was to lie. It was to shift the blame on those who were exposing what he was doing as being these bogus, irresponsible journalists when all along they were telling the truth. He chose to lie because protecting his reputation was the chief pursuit of his life. But in lying, he damaged his reputation even further. And he brought heaps of pain upon his marriage his reputation, and quite possibly his career. His whole life right now is a train wreck. But, my friends, listen to this. Before we cast stones at someone like Anthony Weiner, if you're going to do that, you, you might want to think about giving that stone a gentle lob at him rather than winding up and hurling it like your Nolan Ryan. Because the fact of the matter is is that we're guilty of the same exact thing A million times over. All of us are. Because behind every failure to honor our parents or honor the authorities that God has placed over us in our life lies this insatiable quest to declare our own independence and our own autonomy from any authority, including the authority of God. We we absolutely must have it. Behind every murderous spirit, behind every angry, bitter, grudge-holding heart, lies this ungoverned desire to be honored and respected and loved by somebody else. We, we absolutely have to have it in order for our lives to be meaningful. Behind every misuse of our sexuality lies a covetous heart that says that we receive and achieve sexual satisfaction on our own terms. We're making ourselves our own gods over that. Behind every feeling of entitlement Behind our close-handedness lies a covetous desire for the security of things more so than the security of our position in Jesus Christ. And behind every failure to be forthcoming and truthful in our relationships is a covetous heart that covets the security and the pleasure of a good reputation even if it happens at the expense of somebody else's or at the expense of the truth itself. We're all guilty of all of these things. A covetous heart, my friend, gives you real, tangible evidence of whatever it is that serves as your God. It shows you what you fundamentally believe that you have to have 
other than Christ in order to be a content person. And I think these things are rampant in all of our lives. It's rampant in mine for sure. And so I want to ask you, what are those things? What are those things for you? And I think we need to think about that. This commandment is unique if you look at it in comparison to the other commandments, most of the other ones that we've read recently, because it's very specific in the way it tells us not to covet. It tells us not to covet the stuff of our neighbor's house, to covet his wife or his servants or his animals or or anything that is our neighbor's. It gets into the nitty-gritty specifics. In our confession of sin this morning, if you read over that, it's not just this general, ambiguous confession of sin. It's a confession of sin on the areas of the specifics of our life. We don't sin just in generalities. We sin in specifics. And so I want to ask you, what are the specific areas of your life in which you are experiencing covetousness, in which you are falling prey to that. I think that there are several. We could spend all afternoon talking about it, but I want to just mention three things that I think are common to all of us. Three things that are just common to man that I think that we rely on for our security and our pleasure other than Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. I think one thing that we covet is comfort, pleasure, Freedom, lack of stress. What's so bad about that? Everybody wants that. There's no, nobody that doesn't want to have a, a pleasurable, comfortable life. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think that it begins to own us so often. We, we covet it. We, we scheme to get it. It owns us. You know, when you and I are unhappy, discontent, kind of grumbling people. It's usually because something has encroached on our comfort, isn't it? Something has disturbed that. And, and so maybe you're kind of mad and angry that you're not more comfortable right now. Things in your life, they're, not, they're just not right. Your, your health, uh, your relationships, maybe something even here at the church, your family, something in your life is bringing you more pain than pleasure and it's making you a little bit bitter. And so you complain about it. Be honest with yourself. If, if you're someone who complains a lot, then you're probably someone who has this covetous desire for a more comfortable life. You have to have it in order for your life to be content. Perhaps that comfort that you covet is the very thing that's screwing up your relationships right now. Men, I, I want you to listen to me. If, if your chief longing in life is to be comfortable at home, then you're probably being a really, really lousy husband at the moment. Quite frankly, you are, because you're understanding your relationship with your wife or your relationship with your children as them existing in order to fulfill your desire to be comfortable. You may not want to admit that. You may not put it out in that plane of a language, but the fact of the matter is, is that's the case. And so you may view your, your wife as, as someone who exists to make your life comfortable. And maybe you need to have a heart-to-heart with her and ask her if that's how she feels. And be honest and be able to take that. And don't get defensive if she tells you that, yes, that is how she feels. Because even if that's just perception, that's her reality. And women, you're not off the hook on this. Sorry but we're all guilty of this. If comfort is what you covet above all things, then you're probably a real hardcore nag. 
That's probably the case in your life. You probably disrespect your husband. You want to send your husband into a hole, then disrespect him. That's the best way that you can do it. That's my advice for you this morning, how to screw up your marriage. That's the way you emasculate your husband, when you so long for comfort and you make him the God that's supposed to bring you that comfort. That's how you mess up your marriage. That's how you do it. You need to work that out together. But at the bottom of it all, at the bottom of it all, what you're doing is relationship for the sake of your own comfort. That's how you mess up your relationships. If you see other people existing for the sole purpose of making your life a pleasure fast. That's not the way in which we're called to do it. It's what you worship above God. You idolize your comfort. And to some extent, my friends, to some extent, that's just apparent in all of us. And we might as well recognize it. Bring it to the throne of grace and ask him to remove that from our lives. And to fill us up with more of who he is rather than coveting that to the degree that it owns us. So comfort is one of the things that we covet. Here's another thing that I think that we covet. Approval. Everybody wants to be approved and accepted, and that's also a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I love to be approved. I could sit that drink all day long. I love, I love a pat on the back. I love to be accepted. I don't like rejection. That's been part of my life for as long as I can remember. In fact, I remember when I was a high school senior, back when everything was in black and white, I was applying to colleges, and and I didn't apply to any college that I was pretty sure I could get rejected from. I only applied to the schools I knew that I was going to get accepted to because I couldn't face the rejection. And maybe approval is one of the things that you covet in your life as well. It's, it's something that owns you. Uh, you want to be accepted. And everybody wants that. But you, you start coveting what your neighbor has in order to be accepted. The things that the world throws out at you that, says that, that you tell yourself you have to have in order to be accepted. We want what our neighbors have so that we'll get a greater level of acceptance from the people that we want to be like. But see, in our quest for approval... What happens is other people start to feel smothered. This is another thing I notice in my life. This is, this is a, kind of a weird one, but whenever I say something that is insensitive to Rebecca or I, I just say or do something that's irresponsible, it's not particularly kind and loving to my wife, I discover it. And when I discover it, I try to atone for my sin by cleaning up the house. I... I I start scrubbing toilets and bathtubs and mopping floors and vacuuming carpet because I I feel like I have to do that in order to get approval. And it's not any kind of altruistic thing like I'm just this wonderful husband who cleans the house. It's totally self-serving. It's something that I do because I I feel like I, I cannot bear the thought of not having the approval of my wife. That's kind of weird, but yes, that's a reality. The cards are on the table. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's smothering to her. It's smothering because she has to come back and she has to remind me that my acceptance in her eyes is not based upon the perfection of my words or my actions. My acceptance in her eyes is because she loves me as I am, warts and all. Even when I say and do things that are not particularly sensitive. It, she's showing me in that that she loves me in a way that in some respect resembles the way that Christ loves me. 
See, Jesus loves everybody completely who rests in him alone. That, that's, what, that's what makes you secure, that you can never add to or subtract from the love of Christ for you when you rest in him. And that brings you great security. It, it helps you to understand that you are completely approved, completely accepted, regardless of what the world says about you. And when you start to internalize that and get that down into your veins, then that goes miles and miles and miles in helping you overcome this addiction to human approval, this covetousness of it. So approval and comfort are a couple of things that we covet, that we tell ourselves that are, that's necessary for our happiness. We, we have to have it. We nurse it to the point to the, that it owns us. We scheme to get it, and we receive it sometimes. Yay, we receive comfort and approval, but it's never enough. There's, there's not a person out there that feels comfortable enough. Or accepted enough. That person doesn't exist in this life. And you're not going to be the one who eventually achieves it. But it's a thing that we scheme for. Here's the last one. Last thing I want to bring out as a thing that we covet. Last thing is control. If you're someone who's constantly ten minutes late, you're probably someone who desires comfort. You kind of do life on your own terms. You're carefree. If you're someone who's constantly 10 minutes early, you want control. You want to control your environment. Maybe that's the case. Being in control might actually be the very thing that brings you comfort. There's probably not a lot of people, if you're a controlling person, probably not a lot of people that would characterize you as being particularly spontaneous because you, you can't deal with the loose ends in your life. You have to have it under control. A few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now, I I read an excerpt of a book uh, for you uh, that was written by a Yale University law professor named Amy Chua. If you go to Books a Million or Barnes & Noble, you'll find her book. It's called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. She is this crazy-driven mother who does not expect that her children will be excellent at everything, she expects that her children will be the best of the best at everything. And 99% on a test, that is completely unacceptable. It has to be 100%. They have to be number one above all of the other people. She's driven her kids so hardcore that her, her child at the age of like 15 years old was performing the piano in Carnegie Hall in New York. That's her parenting philosophy. If you're you're someone who is a control person, who covets that, who has to have it and owns you, then you're probably someone who's crazy driven like that. Maybe not in that particular area, but in some other aspect of life. You're driven to have things under control. You, You have to control your circumstances. You probably make a lot of demands upon people and you're constantly feeling disappointed about something going on in your life. Because it's really, really, really important to you to have your life all ordered. You're probably someone who worries a lot because you can't deal with the ambiguity. You can't deal with the uncertainty of life. And your worry makes you a negative person. Makes you someone who probably sees life as being a cup that's only that's half empty rather than half full. You, you worship being in control. 
And that's what's behind our covetous hearts. That's what lies there. Behind our rejection of authority, behind our anger and our bitterness and our dishonesty and all of those things lies this insatiable quest for comfort and approval and control. And it's a way in which we fundamentally live life on our own terms. And to live life on your own terms, to be told that that's the way in which you're supposed to live life, is to believe the biggest whopper of a lie that's ever been told. It's from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. But it's something that we believe and something that we imbibe when we covet what our neighbors have or what they, we think that they have, and we set our hearts on those things, then we find ourselves worshiping a different God altogether. We worship the stuff. We worship the reputation. We worship the comfort. We worship all those things other than the true and living God. And those things become gods like, uh, to us because just like God, they promise us life if we follow after them. And just like God, they promise to curse us if, they, if we reject them. But the only problem is, is that they're counterfeits. Comfort, approval, control, they're, they're, they're plastic. They're fake. They're counterfeits. They're not the real thing. They're never going to deliver the blessings that they promise. If you remember Romans chapter 7, it wasn't until Paul got to this commandment, the, the 10th commandment, that he realized that he was that he was utterly hopeless apart from Christ. He saw himself as someone who outwardly kept the commandments. He, he wasn't someone who slept around. He wasn't someone who stole things. He was a pretty honest guy. Uh, he, was, he was a church-going, conservative, family values kind of dude. But then he got to the Tenth Commandment and he realized that his heart was so much more deceitful than he ever imagined it to be because this commandment really struck at the level of his heart. He was trying to seek life through keeping the law, through doing a lot of good stuff and avoiding a lot of bad stuff. But that law that promised him life was the very thing that killed him. And so he discovers this in the Tenth Commandment. And and you get to Romans 7 towards the end of it, and he's saying that, the good things that I want to do, I can't do. And the bad things that I, that I don't want to do, I actually find myself doing. Wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of sin and death? And then he answers, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying that his, his only hope and his only comfort lies in the fact that we are not saved by our life. We're saved by Jesus' life that's credited to us. That's our hope. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What's the practical value of it? Just a couple of real quick things before we go. You know what it does? It brings you all the things that you're looking for and the things that you covet that that you never find. It, It brings you comfort. In the midst of the of the deepest possible pain that you may be going through or that you will go through, knowing your position in Jesus Christ is something that gives you remarkable comfort because it tells you that all of the comforts of this life are fleeting 
If you are in a place of great comfort right now, praise God for it. Enjoy every minute of it. But it could be gone tomorrow. The only comfort that you have in life and in death is that Jesus Christ has come and He's purchased your life and redeemed you at the cost of His own. It causes you to set your sights on heaven that your circumstances now do not have the final say. That your circumstances will be perfect in heaven and it's yours, it's secure. It can never perish or spoil or fade. Take comfort in that. Have a heavenly mind. And when you have that heavenly mind, you will enjoy comfort even in the midst of remarkably painful circumstances. The other thing that it does is that it gives you approval. When you rest in Jesus Christ, you know that you have, a, have an approval that is not conditioned upon your performance. It's conditioned upon the performance of Jesus Christ given to you. You're never going to be approved enough in this world to satisfy you. You never will. You'll never get that from your husband or your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your children or your parents or your colleagues or anybody. You're never going to get approved enough. The only thing that can ultimately satisfy you is the approval that Jesus Christ gives to you in the gospel. Rest in that. Own it. Suck it out of the straw. Follow it all day long. Pursue it with zeal. Covet that approval. You already have it. Chase after it. The last thing it does, you're probably going to guess it, you realize that your life is under control. Your life is not spinning into this meaningless, crazy oblivion in no man's land. When you can rest in Jesus Christ, you can trust in his providence and be content with it. You can be content with where he's brought you. You can say, I can have this experience or not and be content. I can have this health or not have it and be content. I can have these things or not and still be joyful. I can know what tomorrow will bring or not know what tomorrow will bring and I can be content in that. The ways that you're driven to control your circumstances get redirected. They get, they get redirected to be driven towards godliness reflecting that holiness and justice and goodness and truth of Jesus Christ in your life. In 1 Timothy, Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. The gospel makes you covet God. It, it makes you have this insatiable thirst for Him. This quest to follow Him and to be like Him. And it makes you content. And it also makes you love. Love is ultimately the opposite of covetousness. Because when you covet God and love God, you stop coveting your neighbor. And you start to love him and lay down your life for him. Just as Christ has loved you and laid down his life for you. Let's think about that now as we come to him in prayer. Jesus, your, your word is so piercing and so beautiful. It's so hard, but it's so good. We are great sinners. We are professionals in it. We have a PhD in that. But you are a greater Savior Cause us to cherish your beauty. Cause us to cherish your love more than 
that junk that gets thrown at us in life that we believe that we have to have in order to be valid human beings, content people. Cause us to be content and joyful in you and what you've accomplished for us and what you continue to do for us. We ask this all in the name of him who came such a distance for us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.